So that's where we're going tonight. Um, here's our questions that came in. So I just kind of give you the, the questions that came in that we're going to look at here. Um, first question, how are people saved during the tribulation if the church is removed from earth? So we're talking about how do, how do people get saved in the, tri- in the tribulation? All of these questions I kind of put in my own words a little bit. So hopefully they, they cover it for you. Second question, if people are saved during the tribulation, would they not have to endure the wrath of God during that time? And if, if we are protected from God's wrath during that time, then why are they not protected from God's wrath? And so I, th- I thought that was a good question, something I, I hadn't thought about too much, but uh, I think we can answer that. Kind of a, a part two to that question, does that not argue for no salvation during the tribulation or uh, a mid-tribulation rapture? So some people will say, well, um, there might be people saved during the first bit of the tribulation, then there's a rapture, and then after that point, nobody ever gets saved. And so, um, so we'll kind of talk briefly about a mid-tribulation rapture. Another question that came in, um, will the Holy Spirit remain on earth during the tribulation, or will he be removed from the earth at that time, just like the church is? So the church is removed, and so the question is, what about the Holy Spirit? Is he around on earth during that time? Another question, Revelation 1823 talks about the nations being deceived by the sorcery, um, the sorcery of Babylon. There we go. Um, is the word translated sorcery connected to pharmaceutical? And what does that mean for us today? So we'll, I think I'll, I'll go into more details about what that question is all about when we get there. But Revelation 1823 came up. Um, and then this is a question that we were going to pretty much cover anyways. I'm not sure if I, if I'm going to get into this as much as, as we'd want, but John 5, 28, 29 talks about the resurrection of the wicked and the resurrection of the righteous. It seems to talk about it at the same time. And so the question is, well, when does that take place? And, um, I think kind of behind that question is, are, are there, are there multiple resurrections? Or does John 5.28 tell us that there can only be one resurrection? So we will, um, we'll talk about that. And uh, that was it for questions that came in. So if, if you have, you know what? After this, we're not going to do um, Sunday night services in December. But after, after when we get back into January, I think we could always do some kind of Q&A time during these sessions if there's anything that, that you're wondering. So... Um, so let's get right into these answers to these questions. And, and like I said, most of them fall into this tribulation time. We've, uh, we covered already the rapture and the tribulation. And really that's all we've looked at so far in, in the series is the, is the rapture and the tribulation. Um, most of our questions come right here. So let's, let's get into that. Okay. So I'm not, again, I'm not going to give any review. But let's talk about the tribulation, and, and these are the, the questions that came up, so we're going to kind of answer these one by one. How are people saved during the tribulation? How are people saved during the tribulation? Um, before the tribulation, we argued that the church is going to be removed, right? That there's going to be a rapture, and according to Revelation 3.10, the church is promised that they're going to be kept from or kept out of this hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell 
on the earth. That's Revelation 3.10. So the church is going to be removed. Well, then how do people get saved during that time? With the church removed, how do people get saved during the tribulation? Now, um, as we kind of think about that question, I think it's helpful to realize something I didn't say last time is that there's really two purposes during the tribulation period. What would you, let's get some Q&A here. What, what would you guys say would be one of the purposes during the tribulation time? What's the, what's the main thing that's going on during the tribulation? Scary, scary questions here. God's wrath. Yeah, I would say you could say, we could say tribulations going on, right? During the tribulation. Um, so that's a pretty safe one. God's wrath is, is the main purpose. I think the, the number one purpose, God's wrath is going to be poured out on the unbelieving world. So well, well done there. Number two is God is going to use the difficulties of the tribulation for the salvation of Israel so that Israel will be prepared to enter into the kingdom, at least as far as I understand the way that things happen. And so Israel is going to be a primary factor in the, in the, in the, in the kingdom. Well, they need to be saved in order to enter into the kingdom. And so they're going to get saved during that time. And so that's the, the two major things that are happening during all those little details of the Antichrist and the beast and all that. The, the big picture, God's wrath and the salvation of Israel. Um, Paul Benware, in his book, Understanding the End Times Prophecy, which I, I found very helpful and, and um, very like-minded in uh, almost everything, as, as, we, as our church would be, as I would be, um, he says, quote, As the terrible events of the tribulation unfold, and especially as the Jewish people enter into the great tribulation, they will suffer terrible persecution at the hands of Antichrist. And they will begin turning to their Messiah, who centuries before died for them. God will use those terrible times and wicked individuals to pull the spiritual blinders off the nation. And and that's exactly what's happening in the tribulation. He goes on to say, Israel will become a believing nation and God will have fulfilled his great purpose. And then he gives this list of scriptures here. And we're going to look at, at, actually, we're going to spend a minute and look at most of these. Um, I'm not going to go to Romans 11, but Romans 11, even in the New Testament, talks about this salvation of Israel. He says, Ben Ware goes on, he says, we should not forget that all this is linked with co- the covenant promises made by God to Israel in the Old Testament. Many of those unconditional, eternal promises have not yet been fulfilled and await Israel's national regeneration. It is only as a saved nation that Israel can enter into the Messiah's kingdom and experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So we're actually going to go and look at some of the, the promises, some of these unconditional eternal promises that God gave Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and we'll see that, that these things have not yet been fulfilled. So that's what Paul Benware says. Israel, in other words, has to be saved. So one of the verses he, he looked at was Ezekiel 39. So if, if you want, you can turn with me in your Bible, or I guess it's on the screen there. Uh, Ezekiel 39, 21 to 24, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have ex- executed and my hand that I have laid on them. 
So this is talking about the time of the tribulation. And there's going to be God's judgment executed um, on all the nations. And the house of Israel at that time shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. So from the, the time of the tribulation, when there's this salvation that happens for Israel until the eternal state, Israel's going to know the Lord. And the nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. So Israel rejected the Messiah, killed Christ, and there's, there's this judgment that's happening on them and, and this judgment is happening during the tribulation especially but even today, Israel's under judgment. They're, they don't know the Lord. For the most part, individuals do, but the nation doesn't. And so there's going to be, though, this salvation of Israel that happens, according to Ezekiel 39. That hasn't, that hasn't happened yet. Continuing Ezekiel 25, 39, 25 to 29, just the next verses. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. Now, this is a very, Important phrase here, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. So we've got Jacob and Israel here. And there's going to be a re- restoration of fortunes. There's going to be mercy on the whole house of them, all of them. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery that they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel declares the Lord. So here's going to be this, and this answers maybe our, I think it was our third question. You see that this is during the tribulation again, and there's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit on the house of Israel. And again, there's going to be a, a gathering of Israel from among the nations and a salvation of them. And they're going to know, they're going to know the Lord. Um, and so again, there's going to be a salvation of Israel. And this happens during the tribulation. Now, this salvation of Israel and this restoration of fortunes was prophesied even as early as the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 30, 1 to 6, is a really important text. And the Lord says there, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. Remember the the chapters before Jeremiah 30 is the the curses and the blessings. And God's saying to Israel, all those things are going to come upon you which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with your, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord God, so at that time, the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. That's what we just read in Ezekiel. And he will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it. 
and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And here's the key verse here, verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So as early as Deuteronomy, the Lord promised that Israel was going to be scattered among the nations because they were going to disobey the Lord. And then there was going to be this regathering of Israel and the Lord was going to restore their fortunes and circumcise their hearts so that they'd love the Lord. And, and that's, that's again, that's talking about salvation. That's talking about a regeneration. Now, where have you heard this language that the Lord is going to circumcise your heart or give a new heart? Old Testament promise. Anyone, anyone thinking of any verses there? Ezekiel 36. Perfect. Ezekiel uh, 36. And that's, that's exactly right. So I, I think I have Ezekiel 36 here next. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 27 also talks and, and, and kind of picks up this language from Deuteronomy and, uh, and takes it a little bit further. So therefore say to the house of Israel, Ezekiel says, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. So here's the nations knowing that I'm the Lord, declares the Lord. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather, gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now, there's again this, this gonna be this gathering of all the countries bringing Israel into their land. Now, one of the things that it seems to me is that's gonna make these people gather is that the, the sacrificial system, remember I told you that the temple was gonna be rebuilt at some point during the, during the uh, tribulation? At, at some point, by the midpoint of the tribulation, Israel's offering sacrifices in the temple. And so it, it seems like to me that, that this, this is going to draw everyone from Israel to back to Jerusalem where the, the whole temple system is going to be back in place. And so God's promising there this, this gathering of Israel um, into their own land. Now, notice who this is talking to. This is really important. This is, O house of Israel. Now, we, we will often quote this, and I think rightly so, as we continue on here, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And there's the, the a mention of the Holy Spirit again. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So there's going to be this salvation of Israel. Now, we quote this all the time, and, and I think, again, rightly so, to, to speak about regeneration. Now, what's going on here, though, is, is this is a, a, what, I, what we would maybe call a new covenant. I don't know if that, that's probably not very helpful, but this is a, a new covenant passage, uh, a new covenant promise. And, and what God is going to make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel. But every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right, what do we celebrate? This is the new covenant, right, in my blood. So it seems like what God has done for the church is he has, he has entered us into the blessings, the spiritual blessings of the new covenant now. So we, as the church, enjoy this regeneration and this sprinkling of clean water and, and where the, the uncleanness is removed from us and, the, and our idols, God is cleansing us from our idols. And we have been regenerated and we have a new heart and a new spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in us and all of these things are true of us now. But ultimately, and, and if you just even look at this again, let me see if I can kind of clear this up. Look at right here. This is to Israel, and, and this part of the promise doesn't apply to the church. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. So this is talking about something that, again, is for the house of Israel. Um, but, but again, the church has been entered into the spiritual blessings of this, but one day God is going to still fulfill the rest of this to the people who he originally gave it to. And so I think that's the best way to understand um, how this applies to the church, and yet there's there's promises here that that haven't been fulfilled. Israel has never all been gathered from the nations, and you might say, well, well, aren't they in? Aren't aren't many Israelites in Israel now? Well, many of them are, but we couldn't say all of them are. But we also definitely can't say that they've been sprinkled with clean water and they're clean from all their uncleanness and they're cleansed from their idols. So there's there's a salvation yet promised for Israel that hasn't happened yet. And continuing in this passage then, and you shall dwell in the land. So, so we just, we quote that part, that last few verses that I just read. But now again, God goes right back to this and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Now, again, this is, this is to Israel and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine on you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. And you shall never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Again, we couldn't say that about the church. It's not like, you know, there's churches in the world that have famine. Um, then you shall remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for all your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your ways. And again, this passage ends with the house of Israel. And it began with the house of Israel. So that's Ezekiel 36. Um, important passage in, in this whole thing. Uh, we're, we're thinking about the salvation of Israel during the tribulation. So um, here's another new covenant uh, passage that applies to the church, at least the spiritual parts, but this is given again to Israel. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And Jeremiah, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will give their, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And again, this is a promise of a future salvation that's for Israel, but the, the new covenant and spiritual blessings of this have been temporarily applied to the church. And so what, what God has said, he's going to f- ultimately fulfill for Israel. But for now, he's doing a little bit more. And for the church, he's entered us in and allowed us to participate of these, of these blessings. If, if you are part of the new covenant, then you are one that knows the Lord. But right now, we couldn't say that Israel all knows the Lord. Lots of them don't know the Lord and they aren't saved. And so this is something that is yet to happen that God has prophesied will happen. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now remember, the day of the Lord is the tribulation. And so um, during the tribulation, Elijah the prophet's going to come and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, again, I think this is a a passage that promises um, the salvation of Israel. There's going to be this turning of of hearts to the Lord. Now, you might say, well, didn't Elijah come in the form of John the Baptist? And and that's something that's an interpretive thing we're going to have to deal with. And I think I'll just leave that till when we get to Matthew. Um, but, uh, anyways, there's this, there's going to be this ultimate turning of hearts to the Lord, uh, during that, during the tribulation. Another passage that speaks about the, um, salvation of Israel. Zechariah 12. And, um, and again, this, this is something that still hasn't happened. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, him whom they pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, this is a, this is, this Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. This is when, um, Josiah was killed. There was a great weeping in the land. Even Jeremiah wrote a little lament for that day. And so there's going to be this great mourning in Israel. The land shall mourn. Each family by itself, the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the families of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the house of the Shemites by themselves, and, and so on and so forth. And on that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Again, a, a promise of future salvation when Israel's going to mourn over the Messiah that they crucified. And if you go and you have this in mind and you go now and read Isaiah 53, which we often read to think about the crucifixion, you'll see that they're actually looking back in that passage and they're, 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 it's like a, it's speaking about a future generation of Israel that's looking back on the way they treated the Messiah and now they're confessing the Lord in genuine salvation. And so um, that's what this whole passage is talking about. Now, we will often go to a passage like this and, and compare it to our salvation. And, and I think that's okay, but this is speaking about more than our salvation. This is something for the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of David. Zechariah uh, 18 
Zechariah, so this is supposed to be Zechariah 13. I was thinking that's not right. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9. Zechariah 13. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off. Again, we're, we're in the time of the tribulation right now. And in the whole land, and we're, we're, remember the tri- time of tribulation focuses on Israel. And in the, in the, in the land of Israel, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And this is going to be the final fulfillment of this promise. This is the, the promise that God gave to Abraham in, uh, in Genesis 13, 15, 17, that the, there's going to be this, this, they are my people, and the Lord is my God. And so this is a, a salvation. Now, many, it looks like many Israelites are going to be cut off and perish, but there's going to be this remnant that's going to survive and live, and they're going to be saved in the time of the tribulation. So that kind of shows that people will be saved in the time of tribulation, but the, the question was, how will they be saved in the time of the tribulation? And the answer is, through the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Actually, there's a, there's a few things that the Lord talks about in the book of Revelation, but the first one is these 144,000 Jewish evangelists. This is in Revelation chapter 7. And I, after this, I saw, this is John seeing this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So here's this 144,000 Israelites from every tribe that are, they are sealed and they are servants or they are bond servants of the Lord. And so it seems like these, these people are saved during the tribulation. And there's 12,000 from each tribe, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben. Um, and, and all of them are sealed. Revelation 9, 7, 9, right? So right after that, so there's these, now I, I have no idea what this ceiling is. It's some kind of a mark. It says it's on their forehead. Um, it's kind of like the counterpart to the mark of the beast, but I don't know if it's a literal mark on their, these guys' foreheads or just a mark that the angels see. I have, I have no idea. Um, but these guys are especially marked as servants of the Lord. And then right after that in John's vision in verse 9, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so these, these guys are talking about this salvation that belongs to the Lord. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the living creatures and they, they, they worship God. And they say blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and so on to God. They're worshiping God. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? 
And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So here is the salvation from the tribulation. And there's a, this great, this great multitude of people are saved. They're coming out of this great tribulation and uh, they've been saved during that time. Now that's right after the 144,000 kind of begin their ministry. And so it seems like these 144,000 are proclaiming the gospel. They're, they're Israelites that have experienced the Zechariah 12:10 weeping and, and, and they've, they've come to salvation. How did they come? The, the God sovereignly regenerated them and saved them, maybe through the, the work of the word, or they just realized all of a sudden that they had rejected the Messiah. And they made the confession then of Isaiah 53, and they, they're saved. Now, if you are millennial or post-millennial, then you believe those 144,000 Israelites are actually the church in the midst of the tribulation. Uh, but Robert, Robert Thomas says this about that. He says, he says, there is no clear-cut example of the church being called Israel. Or sorry, I, I read that wrong. No clear-cut example of the church being called Israel exists in the New Testament or in ancient church writings until 160 AD. Galatians 6.16, in which the Israel of God can and probably does refer to some group other than the church as a whole, is no exception. This fact is crippling to any attempt to identify Israel as the church in Revelation 7.4. He goes on a little bit later to say the approach is so misconceived that it does serious violence to the context. It cannot be exegetically sustained. The 144 are declared to be from Israel, not from any other group. And so Robert Thomas is just saying you're really doing violence to the text if you if you take these 144,000. Like it literally said 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from every tribe in Israel. So the, the these people clearly, according to Revelation, are from Israel. They're, they're, it's not the church. Um, you can't you can't you can't do that. So Ben Ware concludes. He says we can conclude then that the 144,000 are Jewish evangelists who will be kept secure by God as they proclaim the gospel during the days of the tribulation. That's the idea of them being sealed. They're, they're going to be, they're going to be secured. They're going to be made safe by God so that they can continue to minister during this time of intense persecution in the world. And they're going to, they're going to minister. They're going to proclaim the gospel during the, the days of the tribulation. Then he says, but the 144 are not the only ones that God will use to represent him in those days. So how are people saved during the tribulation? First of all, through the 144,000 in Revelation 7. Um, and then in Revelation 11, we hear of two witnesses. Two witnesses. Revelation 11.1. 1. Then I was giving a, given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Remember, 42 months, that's half of the tribulation. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So, the, the Gentiles are going to trample the, the holy city for 42 months. It's debated whether this is in the beginning half or the end half of the tribulation. 
you know, I guess even theoretically, it could be a, a 42 months in the middle of the tribulation somehow. But anyways, there's these two witnesses and they're gonna, they're gonna prophesy even for one half of the tribulation period. Remember, the tribulation period is, is three and, is seven years total, two periods of 42 months or two periods of 1260 days. Continuing Revelation 11, and, and these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, now that's kind of a weird picture. What, these two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands. That comes from Zechariah chapter 3 and 4. And the picture there is of, of two lampstands that are burning. And on top of the burning lampstands, there's two bowls of oil. And beside the two bowls of oil, the, the two bowls of oil, Boils of oil, that's a nasty picture, eh? Um, the two bowls of oil, there's two olive trees, and they're giving oil to the lamps. And so the idea is there's going to be a, a revival, is, is what this, I think this is talking about. There's going to be a, a great witness, and it's, the idea is there's a, there's a never-ending supply of oil for these candles. These are these, and so that's what the, these two olive trees and two lampstands are talking about. There's going to be this never-ending supply, and that's what these witnesses are. They're like a, a never-ending light in the world during the tribulation. And nobody can hurt these guys. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And that's probably why some people think that this is like a, 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 a resurrected Elijah coming back to the earth. Um, we don't need to get into all that. But, but anyways, that's what they have the power to do to stop the rain. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So these are two very powerful witnesses. They're, they're, there's a nonstop light and a nonstop oil supply to their light. And so they're going to be a, a burning candle during this time. And there's, there's two of these guys and they're, they're ministry centers in and around Jerusalem. Continuing on. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, this is the antichrist that makes war on them. And, and, uh, sorry, I read that wrong again. When, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. That's why we think they're in Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. So the, these, these two witnesses are going to be killed. They're going to be resurrected and then they're going to ascend into heaven. And so these witnesses are, are some of the people that are, are proclaiming the gospel during the revelation or during the tribulation and that's how people get saved. So we've got the the Jewish evangelists in Revelation 7, we've got the two witnesses in Revelation 11. In Revelation chapter 14, 
there's angels flying around who proclaim the gospel as well during the tribulation. And so there's, there's an angel that comes and proclaims the, I think it calls it there in that context, the everlasting gospel. Then there's an angel that comes and warns about the, the destruction that's going to come on those who take the mark of the beast. And then there's a third angel and you'd have to go and look and see what he does. I don't remember. Um, these are the main witnesses during the tribulation time. But then as these guys are witnessing, there's going to be other people who get saved. And then, of course, just like it happens today, right? We, we get saved and we tell people about Christ and, and that's going to continue to happen during the tribulation. So the church is removed, but God doesn't leave, uh, the earth without a witness. Just like he, he really always has. There's going to be witnesses on the earth. So that was question, uh, number one. That was the, the most extensive question. Uh, number two, did tribulation saints endure God's wrath? And here's the, the fuller question. If, if people are saved during the tribulation, would they not have to endure the wrath of God during that time? And if we are protected from God's wrath during that time, why, why not, why not them? So that's, I think that's a great question. Um, kind of tied to that question was some thoughts about a, a, a mid-tribulation rapture or, or no salvation view during the tribulation. Um, so what would I answer to that? I, I, you know, first of all, I would say the church is special in God's plans. And this is really cool for us. We, we are the bride of Christ. We are especially protected during this time. And so God has, you know, we're, if, if you're born during the church age, you are of the most blessed people that have ever been on the earth. Um, and that's just a really cool thing. God has chosen us to be his bride and he promised us protection, um, through the tribulation. And, and I already argued for that. Um, as far as those who are in the tribulation time, they're, they're going to be saved from the wrath of God, but they're only going to be thankful to be delivered from that wrath. Again, there's no promise to anyone else that they won't go through the tribulation. There's just this promise to the church. And so those people that are going to be in that time, they, some of them will be saved from God's wrath and they'll be, they'll be grateful for that. Um, but there's no promise that they won't go through the tribulation. And of course, We've seen that people are saved during the tribulation. That's what we've been talking about the last half an hour. And so um, God is going to, seems like he's going to use the trial and difficulties of the tribulation to make Israel realize that they killed and rejected their Messiah. They're going to realize how stubborn they've been and they're going to come to uh, repentance. So um, as far as a mid-tribulation rapture because of, of this, um, remember we saw that the wrath of God was already upon the earth by the time of the sixth seal. And, and even there we saw that the, when they recognized the wrath of God was in the sixth seal, but the, the things that happened before that were already the wrath. And so I, I think God's wrath is, is during that tribulation period very early. And so I think it's hard to argue for wrath coming at some later point in the tribulation. Um, as soon as the seals are opened, God's wrath comes. So, that's, that's really all I can do on that question. Um, again, I haven't seen, now I'm not saying there isn't one, but I haven't seen a, a very convincing argument for the church entering any part of the tribulation. So that's that. Now, next question is, will the Holy Spirit remain on the earth during the tribulation? 
And in a sense, I think if we've, if we've kind of understood rightly Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of these passages, we'll see that the Holy Spirit is going to be on the earth, that he is going to be working, he is going to be saving Israel and people from every nation and tribe. Remember that great throng of people in Revelation 7 that were saved, they came out of the tribulation, um, which, oh, there it is, Revelation 7, 9 and, and verse 14. But this question really comes from 2 Thessalonians 2. So let's look at what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 to 8 says, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So remember the Thessalonians, they're worried. They think, oh no, we're in the day of the Lord. We're in the tribulation. We weren't supposed to be in the tribulation. Something went wrong. Paul got it wrong or something. They're, they're kind of worried about this. Paul says, no, 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 that day hasn't come unless all of these things are taking place. So you would know if you were in the tribulation. And then he says this, and this is where this question comes from. And you know that what is restraining him now, him is the man of lawlessness, And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, the the him, the he who now restrains, most people understand that to be the Holy Spirit. So the, the Holy Spirit now, right now, today, is, is doing this restraining work on the earth to keep the mystery of lawlessness at bay, if you want to say it that way. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit is, is restraining, but He is going to be taken out of the way. Now, when we, when He's going to be taken out of the way, I don't think that that means that He's going to be removed from the earth. I just think it means that He's going to stop His restraining work. And then when he does that, that's when the lawless one is going to be revealed. And at the end of the tribulation, when the Lord Jesus comes, he's going to kill the, the, the beast. He's going to kill the, the, the antichrist or the lawless one or whatever we want, we want to call him. He's going to kill him with the breath of his mouth. Revelation chapter 19 kind of talks about that as well. And he's going to bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Revelation, the very next verse, verse nine. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, whoops. Um... Sorry, I, I uh, pressed the wrong button there. All right, so um, sorry, I, I get going and I don't even look at my notes, and now I don't know where I actually am in my notes. This verse here, Second uh, Thessalonians two, 
9 to 12, this, this verse is, is talking about, and this is why, um, some people believe that there's, there is no salvation. If, if you've heard the gospel in this age and then you enter into the tribulation that you won't have an, an opportunity to be saved because the Lord is going to send you a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now, I, I don't, I think it's still possible to be saved like we saw in the tribulation, even if you heard the gospel before. But during this tribulation time, the world is going to be for the most part deceived. And, um, God's going to send them a strong delusion so that they believe that this antichrist figure is God when he, when he sets up his thing. It's going to take a, a strong delusion for them, uh, to, to kind of fall for this thing, which I think is helpful for us to, to kind of keep in mind as well when we think about, um, when we think about the tribulation time and how does all of this happen and how is everyone just so against the Lord? Well, they, the Lord is hardening them just like he hardened Pharaoh's heart and poured out his wrath on Egypt. Now he's going to harden the world's heart and pour out his wrath on the world. Um, but I, but again, I don't think that this, these verses mean that the Holy Spirit is gone during the tribulation. And I, I don't think that those verses mean that, um, that nobody can get saved during the tribulation. We, we've just seen the opposite. But there is going to be a strong delusion. Okay. Pharmaceutical deception and Revelation 18.23. Uh, this is something I've never really heard about before. I don't know if... Maybe I'll explain it a little bit and then I just want to see if, if this is something that you guys have heard before. But Revelation 18.23 talks about the nations being deceived by the sorcery of Babylon. And that word translated sorcery is connected to the word uh, pharmaceutical. Our, our word pharmaceutical comes from that word. And so the, the question is, well, what does this mean for us today? Well, let's go and look at Revelation 18. So Revelation 18, 21 to 24 says this. Um, Revelation 18 is the end of the, near the end of the book of Revelation. Chapter 19 is when the second coming is. So it's, we're, we're kind of at the end of the tribulation period. And at the end of the tribulation period, the, a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you, in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. There's that word. They were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who have been slain on the earth. So um, this is a, a picture of the world system, kind of pictured by Babylon. And, and just like in, in this whole time, the world is... The, the world's having a party, music and harpists and they're, the, you know, they're, they're eating food and they got their lights and all, they got kind of all the good things of the world and they're, they're partying and having a great time. But God says that is all done. You are going to be destroyed. And the nations were deceived by this world system that's, that's symbolized by Babylon here. Now that word sorcery, that word right there, sorcery, is the Greek word uh, pharmakeia, pharmakeia. 
Um, Pharmakeia also in Galatians 5.20 and Revelation 9.21. Galatians 5.20 is one of the works of the flesh is sorcery. Um, this word comes from a, a word uh, pharmacon. I, I don't know if I should be writing this down for you or whatever, but I, uh, let me write it in English. Pharm, pharmakeia. Pharmakeia is, is this word here. Pharmacon. You can't read my writing anyways. There's probably no point in me doing that. Pharmacon um, is, means magic, potion, drug, medicine, remedy, poison. It's kind of any kind of thing like that. Any kind of drug, any kind of medicine, remedy, poison, potion, um, all of those kind of things together. And, and then there's a, a pharmacos who's a, a, a poisoner or a magician or a sorcerer. And that word's used in Revelation 21. Remember Revelation 21.8 that outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and those who love and practice lies, I think is how that verse goes. Um, that's sorcerers. So, so, okay, let me just ask this question. Has anyone, who's heard this, this connection between pharmacy and maybe a little, okay, couple, okay. Um, let me, let me go to a Greek dictionary. The, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology on page 558 kind of goes through this a little bit. And, and this is what they say. They say pharmakos, magician, Revelation 22.15. They're just kind of putting the words together. Pharmakos, mixer of potions, magician, Revelation 21.8. Pharmakeia, magic, means magic and sorcery in those verses there. This is the, this is the one that, that was particularly our attention, this deceiving the nations. Magic, sorcery. The basic word, pharmacon, does not occur in the New Testament, but the, its meaning is medicine, magic potion, poison, gives the underlying idea of the words. Potions include poisons, but there's, there's always been a magical tradition of herbs gathered and prepared for spells, and also for encouraging the presence of spirits at magical ceremonies. Sorcery is classed among the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. Now that's just a... Um, they're just kind of summarizing the use of these words. But this word um, in Revelation 21 or in Revelation 18.23 just means magic and sorcery. And of course, you can see as time goes on how um, ancient Near Eastern magic and sorcery eventually became kind of our medicine and poisons. And, and so the, we can see how the English word pharmacy would kind of come from that word pharmakeia. But when it's talking about pharmakeia, it, the, pharmakeia, this, this word, which I just crossed out and you can't even see it when I do that, but pharmakeia, it just means magic and sorcery. It, do, it doesn't have anything to do with our modern day phar- pharmacy. Now, of course, we're looking out at the world and we see the, the pharmaceutical companies deceiving the nations and, and being used in, in wicked ways, I would, I would argue. Um, but that's not, that's not the deception of the nations and, and that's really nothing that, that we need to worry about. Revelation 18 is just saying that the world system by their, by their magic and sorcery, by the, the way that they operate has deceived the nations to living for the things of the world and, instead of for the Lord. And, um, and that's going to be destroyed at the end of, 
uh, the tribulation. So I don't know if that answers it for you, but, um, but that's kind of the best I can do on that. So that's, that I believe is the end of our Q and a, uh, time now. Um, are, I'm kind of like debating, do I want to do this? Are, the, are there any, uh, any other questions that kind of have come out of that, that what we just talked about? Uh, is there, the question is, cause no, they can't hear it on the thing. Is there repentance available for anyone who takes the mark of the beast? Um, and I, you know what, to, to like give the best answer, I'd probably need to spend a little bit more time thinking about that, but I would, I, I think no. I think the answer is no. I think anyone who takes the mark of the beast, their name was written before the foundation of the world, uh, and um, and same with those who didn't take the mark of the beast during the tribulation. Their name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, and I, and I would I would take that to be part of God's decree from before the foundation of the world. And so whoever is deceived and and goes into that system isn't isn't coming back out of that system. Um, again, for us, I don't think we have to worry about that because we're not here. Um, and I think also. Tied with that, as we kind of just understanding God's sovereignty and the way that things like that would work, I don't think there's anybody who gets that mark of the beast who wants to get out of that system. And I think it kind of works that way as well. So it's not like there's going to be people going, oh man, I got tricked and I took this thing and now, no, they, they're worshiping the satanic system of the world. They've been given a strong delusion. They don't have the love of the truth that they might be saved, Thessalonians, and so they don't they don't want to be saved either. So I think that's the way I'd understand it for now. But to really, um, I haven't done a thorough, the most thorough studying I've done on the Mark of the Beast has been since I moved to Lacrete, where, where that's a, a concern of a heightened proportion that uh, I've never seen anywhere else, which is, which is great. Any other questions? Well, let's, how are you guys doing? Are you guys, are you guys ready to go to bed for the night or you guys want to keep going for another half an hour? George says, sure. Okay. Okay. Well, let, uh, now that George said, sure, nobody's willing, nobody wants to say no. Um, all right. So let's, let's go, let's see where we get here. Let's get into the millennial kingdom. Um, let's get into the millennial kingdom. I've got, again, a lot of scriptures here, uh, so we've, we've talked about the rapture. Then we have the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, the Lord returns to earth. And the reason for his returning is to judge the, the wicked world. He's gonna, he's gonna save Israel. Um, not only in salvation, but also there's gonna be a salvation of Israel from the, the, the armies, uh, in the battle of Armageddon that, that are kind of all around the ancient Near East. There's this, there's this like strategic battle 
that goes, goes along kind of all around Israel. The Lord's going to come. He's, his feet are going to be on the Mount of Olives and he's going to destroy his enemies and set up his kingdom. And then Christ is going to rule over a renewed earth, uh, with us, his people. We're going to, we're going to return with him at that time. And this reign, according to Revelation 20, is for an, a 1,000 year period. So I want to start though, as we look at this, I want to start in the Old Testament and see, and we, and we already saw this early in our, in our lecture here, that there were promises made to Abraham, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that have yet to be fulfilled, even in the, in the book of Genesis and, um, Exodus and we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 30. There's, there's things that have never been fulfilled that are going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. There's, there was supposed to be a reign of man on the earth when, when God made Adam. And of course, the first Adam failed, but where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to reign on the earth. And that's why Revelation, I think, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, 24, talks about that that he must reign until he until his enemies are made subject to him and so Christ has to reign on the earth because God's plan was for there to be a reign of man on the earth and that reign of man on the earth is going to be fulfilled at least initially in the intermediate kingdom in in the millennial kingdom and it, the millennial kingdom is going to be kind of like a time between um between the the what we have now and the eternal state. It's not quite the eternal state, but it's also better than what is now. And so we see this. There's there's promises that God made to Israel that have never been fulfilled. And so starting in Genesis 15, we'll just kind of do a, a brief tour through some of these. Genesis 15, this is God's covenant with Abraham. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. These are the, the pieces that Abraham had cut and laid apart. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I give this land. I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river to the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, Israel, even in the day of Solomon, has never occupied all of the land from the river of Egypt, from the Nile, all the way to the Euphrates, which is by Babylon. So, th- so you could go and get one of your Bible maps out and look at that land. But Israel has never occupied this land and yet it was given by God to Abraham to his offspring and I think the way that Abraham would have understood this is that this was going to be given to his offspring to Isaac and and Jacob and and so on down the line so that there's a promise in Genesis 15 that that's reiterated again in Genesis 17 God says to Abraham or Abraham again uh, behold my covenant is with you this is a, an un, whoa, this is a, whoops. This is an unconditional. This is an unconditional covenant that God makes with Abraham that, that again, has no conditions. This is something that God himself is promising to do. My covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now again, this is a promise that's ultimately for Israel. And it's a, you know, there's, there's some spiritual aspects of this that are fulfilled in the new covenant. But this has never happened where, where all, where Israel has occupied all of this land and it's for an everlasting thing. And God's going to be God to them. So again, God is promising Abraham that he's going to save his offspring and be their God and they're going to dwell in this land. And even, even they're going to have a king. And so as further revelation kind of comes, we see that this king initially is David, but the Davidic king ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the, the promise, um, the promise made, the promise made to David here in 2 Samuel 7, 10 to 16. This is the, the Davidic covenant passage. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So here's a, a promise that there's not going to be any war in Israel from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord, and you know, has that ever been fulfilled for Israel? I don't, I don't think there's ever been a time except for a, a foretaste of it in Solomon's day where this has been fulfilled. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is speaking to David. I will, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Notice this forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now this promise is is made to David and his offspring. And there's some parts of this, like this part here, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men that, that seems to speak to Solomon and the, the regular earthly kings that came after David. But there's parts of this that, that, that point to the Lord Jesus Christ, that, this idea that I will give you rest from all your enemies. That's never happened. And this promise of a, that this king, this Davidic king is going to reign forever. Now, how is anyone going to reign forever unless they're going to live forever, right? And so this is speaking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to reign forever over the kingdom. He is the ultimate seed who's going to make all of this happen. The promises to Abraham and the promises to David. Uh, another passage that we want to look at here is Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes from for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So there's going to be this time, Isaiah prophesies, where the, the peoples of the nations are going to go to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they're going to, they're going to worship God in Jerusalem. And it's going to be a time where the nations don't have war anymore. Now, again, when, when would this be? And, and of course, I think the answer to this has to be in, in the kingdom. Um, you know, I think this passage is one where we could say, okay, well, maybe, maybe this is something that's going to happen in the eternal state. And, and I think it could, um, and this could be pointing forward to the eternal state, but I, I think there's passages where we see that, that it can't be the eternal state. And so this is, again, this is something that has not yet happened and, and must happen because God has prophesied that it would happen. And, and when we think about prophecy, when we think about the second coming of Christ and, and, and what has been prophesied, think about, go back to the first coming of Christ. And what we see is all the prophecies about Christ were, were very literally fulfilled. There, there's no like spiritual fulfillment. It's just, it's, it's literally what it says is what happened. And, and in the same way with the second coming of Christ, these things are going to have to happen literally where there's going to be nations coming to worship the Lord at the, at the mountain of the Lord. They're going to come to the temple and they're going to learn the ways of the Lord and walk in his paths. Now, when we get to the eternal state, and, and maybe this is why I put this one in here, when we get to the eternal state, I don't think there's going to be any learning of his ways. Everyone's going to already know his ways. And so when would something like this happen? It has to happen in that intermediate kingdom, um, which we call the millennial kingdom. So that's Isaiah 2, but there's, there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, we know this is about Christ. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We, we always think about this as, as the Lord Jesus Christ, but notice the government's going to be on his shoulder. That, the idea there, it's not that the government's going to oppress him, it's, it's that he's going to carry the government. Of his, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, we recognize this passage is speaking about Christ, but when has the increase of his government and peace happened? When does he sit, sat on the throne of David? And over his kingdom. So you have to ask yourself at this time, where, where, where's David's throne? Well, if you ask David, where's my throne? He's going to say, well, it was in Jerusalem on the earth. If you're a millennialist, what you have, or a post millennialist, um, 
you have to take this throne of David and you say, well, actually that got transposed into heaven. Um, but this passage is speaking about an earthly kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to establish and uphold with righteousness. And when that kingdom starts, it's going to continue forevermore. The, the zeal of the Lord is going to do this. He's going to do it. So when does this happen again? This is a, a passage that looks forward to the millennial kingdom. And even the, in the New Testament, we see this as well. Luke chapter 1 and verse uh, 30, 33. And the angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I think naturally we kind of read this passage and we think about the throne of David and we think maybe that's something in heaven. But this is a this is something that's going to happen on earth that has yet to happen. When Christ comes again, he is going to reign over the house of Jacob. That's going to be for an initial thousand year period. And then that's going to continue on in the eternal state. Um, and so the, the promises made to Abraham and David must be fulfilled. And we see this again in Ezekiel 37. We already read Ezekiel 36. That was the promise that, that uh, in the time of the tribulation, there was going to be a new covenant, new heart. God was going to save Israel. Well, a little bit later, Ezekiel 37, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and for the pe- and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick that it may become one in your hand. So here's Ezekiel. He's doing kind of a weird prophet kind of thing. Ezekiel's always doing these weird little picture things. Well, he's got two sticks. One's Judah, one's Israel. Now, Judah and Israel, remember, they, the, they split, right? They split in, uh, the years, the year's gonna elude me right now. Um, but in the time of Jeroboam, right after Solomon, Israel and Judah split, and they never, they never joined together again. There was always Israel, there was always Judah. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, Jeremiah is gonna, or Ezekiel is gonna take these sticks, one for Israel, one for Judah. And let's see what he does with these sticks. Verse 18, and, and when your people say to you, which you would kind of do whenever Ezekiel is doing something weird, they're going to ask him, what are you doing, Ezekiel, with, what are you doing with these sticks? Well, when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim. Ephraim is Israel and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. Verse 22, and and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them, one king shall be king over them all. Who do you think that's going to be? Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's going to be the king over all of them. And they shall no longer be two nations 
and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols. This is an important part of this here because you might be able to say, well, they're, they're two, they're one nation now in Israel. But look at this. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So God is going to be their God. There's going to be one king over this, this newly united Israel that's been gathered from the nations and they're going to be a saved nation. And again, we say, well, well, when, this hasn't happened yet. So it, ha- it must happen yet in the future. And that's going to be in the millennial kingdom. And we continue on it's just reading through Ezekiel 37. My servant David, this again is, is pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. My servant David shall be king over them. David's long dead by Ezekiel's day. And they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. There's the, the land promise. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. So God is himself is going to dwell there. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And so again, this is a something that has never been fulfilled that has to be fulfilled yet. Uh, let's go to another one. Zechariah, and we could just almost do this for hours and hours. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah kind of mixes the, the second coming and, um, and the kingdom together in, in Zechariah 12, 13, 14. Kind of all of that is, is together, the, the tribulation and the kingdom. Uh, but this, this part, especially Zechariah 14, focuses on the kingdom. So behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. This is the the second coming. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azale, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So this is the Israel's in some kind of danger. There's a there's a there's a, a battle going on, and the Lord Jesus Christ returns to save his people. And on that day there will be no light, cold, or frost. Remember, we saw this in Matthew uh, chapter 24 as well. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but evening time there shall be light, and on that day living water shall flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, 
the Lord will be one and his name one. So from that day on, the Lord is going to be king over the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole land shall be turned into a plain. Uh, Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower to the king's winepress and it shall be inhabited and there shall never be again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So again, from that day on, Jerusalem is going to be safe. The nations are going to beat their swords into plowshares and, and all of that. Verse 10, the whole land shall be turned into a plain. Didn't I just read this one? <coughs> Sorry. Um, I read this part of it. So Jerusalem shall dwell in security and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouths. Now, what I, what, the reason why I wanted you to see this part here is that this, this picture just doesn't fit with the eternal state, does it? There's, there's not going to be this kind of thing happening during the, the eternal state, but there's going to be a plague. So there's going to be some people that are going to try to fight against Jerusalem. And then it says, continuing on, and on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold and silver and garments in great abundance and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. So there's this battle in Jerusalem. The Lord comes, destroys most of the people. But there's going to be some people of the nations that didn't come and fight in Jerusalem, and some of them are going to survive. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Now that has never happened in the, in the history. There's never been a time where people are celebrating the Feast of Booths um, and worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem. And look at what it says though here. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain and there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. This is the punishment. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. Now, again, what am I, why am I showing you this? Well, because this does not fit the eternal state. There's not going to be any plagues in the eternal state. There's not going to be judgment on Egypt in the eternal state. There might be Egyptians in the eternal state, but the, but so this time doesn't fit with the eternal state. But at the same time, it doesn't fit with now. Nobody's going up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. There's, there's nobody keeping the Feast of Booze. And so again, this is a, a time that's been prophesied that hasn't been fulfilled. And so it must be future, but it doesn't fit with what we understand about the eternal state. And so again, there, there has to be an intermediate state. 
And so Michael Vlock says, um, kind of, I don't know if, if the passages that we looked at were the same ones that he had pointed to, but very similar, I'm sure. And he says in his book, Premillennialism, um, he says, these passages reveal a coming earthly kingdom of God under the Messiah. No indication exists that these promises of earthly kingdom won't be literally fulfilled or that these promises will eventually give way to spiritual realities. Nor is there any indication that these passage should, passages should be spiritualized to this present age with the church. And I think that's really important. The, 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 the idea here is look at all the details that the Lord goes to to say it's going to be this land from here to here. And, and, and Israel is going to dwell in this land and the king is going to come and there's going to be worship in Israel. And all of these little details can't just be spiritualized. We, we can't just say, oh yeah, but that's just talking about the church. Now I understand why people do that because we do have the blessings of the new covenant now. And so we, we look at the new covenant promises and we look at Ezekiel 36 and we easily apply it to ourselves now. But what we need to see is that there's still very specific details that God prophesied, that God promised that he's going to yet fulfill. He's not going to make all these specific promises to Abraham about the land and about the king if he's not going to fulfill that. And, and when is he going to fulfill that? Well, it has to be, it has to be during the second, uh, during the second coming. Now let's go to, uh, let's go to one more passage that's not in your notes. I w- because I, w- I want you to just to see a little bit that this is also in the New Testament. So go to Matthew 19, 28. Matthew 19, well, um, I love Peter. He says in verse 27 that Peter's, you know, they're, they're talking about kind of giving up things for the kingdom. And um, Peter says in verse 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So he wants to know what, what's his reward going to be. And Jesus says in verse 28, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, truly I say to you in the new world, and that's literally in the regeneration, um, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and I understand that to be uh, on his glorious throne in the new world, the throne of David on the earth, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's this, this promise to the disciples that they're going to sit on thrones. Jesus is going to sit on his glorious throne, the throne of David, it's going to be in the, in the new world. That's, that is the time of regeneration. It's going to be on a renewed earth. And during the, the kingdom period, there's, this is, this is the time where Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 talks about the, the, the lion's going to eat grain like the ox and, and the, you know, the kid's going to put his hand in the cobra den and it's not going to do any damage to him and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, anyways, it, at this time, on this renewed earth, Christ is going to reign on his, the throne of David and the, the disciples as well are going to sit on 12 tribes, uh, uh, on 12 thrones, and they're going to, they're going to rule over Israel. And so, again, that hasn't happened. When's that going to happen? It, it has to happen 
in the in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, there's there's still more that I, I want to show you. Um, we're running out of time. I'm just going to skip ahead. I want to. I just want to do one more. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 19. For behold, Lord speaking here, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the crying of distress. So Jerusalem at this time is, is going to be in a, in a new earth kind of a state. And, and former things, all the destruction and damage and everything is going to be remembered no more at that time. Now, continuing on in verse 20, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. How, how, what would you call a man who lived a hundred years old today? An old man. But in this day, the man who lives a hundred year old, a young man dies a hundred years old. And the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And I think the idea here is that th- there's a, a man who's a hundred year old who sins, he's going to be judged by the Lord. And he's going to die. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build or and inhabit. A, uh, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be, uh, they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Now, um, none of us today lives as long as a tree. None of our days are as long as the days of a tree. And in fact, I think if you go into, in the New American Standard, I, I think you can, you can see there in that translation that, that this hundred year old person dies. He's a, and, and of course, are there going to be any sinners in the eternal state? No, there's not. And so when is this going to happen? When's, what is Isaiah 65 talking about? Well, he's talking about the intermediate kingdom, the, the millennial kingdom. And, and again, we haven't seen anything like this. But there's going to be a day coming where that's going to happen. It's not quite the eternal state, but it's nothing like now. It's in a new heavens and a new earth. It's a, it's a renewed earth. And um, it's going to be very different, but not quite eternal. Uh, but it does, from there, bleed into eternity. It's, it's a, a reign of Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20 says Satan's going to come out. There's going to be one final deception. And then we enter into the eternal state. So again, this hasn't happened yet. Um, continuing on, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, all of these passages, the only way to, to get around them is, is to spiritualize them somehow. This, this, either, either this is going to happen literally, or you kind of do this magic well, but we have something better spiritual, and God just kind of, 
Ah, God said stuff that, yeah, wasn't so accurate, but he, um, he meant he's going to give us something better. And I, I just don't think that you can, that's, that's exegetically, um, appropriate to do. So, uh, when are these things going to happen again in the eternal state? And I, and I think with that, uh, we should, um, we should end our time. We still haven't talked about resurrections and judgments. Um, and who knows, maybe we will one of these days, but thank you. Uh, good night. See you guys later. Thanks for coming.